Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Canadians are still going to work sick. Why, you may ask, because there's no other choice, really, without paid sick leave. We're going to talk about that. Hamilton's live music venues have been hit hard by the COVID-19 pandemic. What does the future of live music look like? Is the government going to step in and help? Trump's unhappy, apparently, about the impeachment attorney's performance so far as we head into day four of that, and uh, we'll get an update from Washington, Reggie Cicchini. And COVID-19 has had an effect on how students pick their respective programs of studies. Glenn Jones is the dean of the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education, and he joins us. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. One of the issues that... uh, we bring up almost every time we have either a federal or provincial minister on talking about COVID-19 and the uh, the assistance packages that they have been offering over the last little while uh, is, uh, well, it's a very contentious subject. It's uh, it's basically about sick leave. And I, I know that it's become a political hot potato for an awful lot of people these days. Uh, but as we look to stop the spread, which is supposed to be goal number one, I think, in, in dealing with COVID-19, uh, it's amazing how these guys are just doing a lot of finger pointing and not, not a whole lot of anything else. Yesterday on the program, uh, you may have heard we had Dr. Michael Warner on. Dr. Warner is the head of ICU for Michael Guerin Hospital in the GTA. And he told us yesterday that paid sick leave just needs to happen. Like we can't have the provincial government and the federal government batting this back and forth because the part-time workers who are at distribution centers around airports in Peel Region and other essential workers don't have paid sick leave so they can take time off to get a COVID test and isolate while they're waiting for the results. The the recovery benefits that are available are not available in those circumstances, so people are going to work sick. And many of my patients in the ICU are essential workers who either acquired their COVID-19 infection at work or got it from a family member who has COVID-19. It seems so obvious, yet uh, we've asked federal ministers about this and provincial ministers, and they keep saying, well, it's their job. No, it's their job, but it's not happening. Uh, So how are we going to move this forward? Uh, So pleased to welcome to the program Moshe Lander, who is the uh, senior economist and lecturer with Concordia University. Uh, Mr. Lander, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. My pleasure. This seems so obvious to so many of us that are looking at stats, and and you know we can have the debate about whether schools should be open and whether or not you know that's a, a place where the, the you know the virus is going. But workplace is is a non a non-starter. We know that workplaces like warehousing and places of that nature are problematic here for these sorts of things. Uh, why can't we get uh, the proper legislation in place here to try to deal with this? You know, it, it, it's a catch twenty two, right? If you try and force people to stay at home, uh, their livelihoods are compromised. And so Mm -hmm. there's almost this feeling that, you know, I need to be at work, I need to make money. And so, you know, the the legislation isn't kind of correctly balancing the the need to protect your health versus the need to protect your income and job. And uh, because I've heard from people that are in that circumstance, you know, every time we brought the subject up on our program, and, and and they will quite readily admit, you know, yeah, I felt like crap last week. I'm, I'm showing symptoms that could have been COVID. But if I don't go to work, I don't get paid. And if I don't get paid, I can't pay the rent. I can't buy groceries. So, you know, they're the ones that are really in the catch-22 here, aren't they? Yeah, and, and we've been doing this for, for decades. I mean, this is, you know, it's, it's really come to light with COVID because it's it's so um, easy to transmit from one person to another. But how many times have we been in the office where, you know, the person next to you is hacking, coughing, and wheezing, and you're like, hey, pal, you, know, you should go home. You're mm-hmm. getting the rest of us sick here. And the person says, well, I, I need to be here. I, I can't afford to take another day off, or I've used up all of my sick leave. Well, and I've heard s- stories along that line, too, you know, people that, that have those symptoms. And, and you know, and they, they say, well, the employer says, yeah, you should be going home or you shouldn't even come in if you're, if you're feeling that way. But, you know, if you do that, we're going to be short-staffed, and that's going to be tough on everybody else. But go ahead if you want to. And I mean, they, it's almost a guilt trip that they're laying on them. 
Absolutely. And, you know, it, it's so much worse, too, for uh, women in the workforce, right? Because, of course, uh, you know, fairly or unfairly, right, which is a different discussion, right? They have a disproportionate amount of uh, home responsibility still burdening them. And so, you know, there's there's this extra complicating factor where it's not even equally applied within the labor force itself. And so, you know, the idea of a guy showing up to work is treated almost differently than a woman who's showing up to work. And that in itself creates all kinds of problems that if you're going to start creating legislation, if the roles within the home aren't properly being legislated correctly, then uh, the way of taking sick leave or time off is going to be a problem too. Well, let's talk about the dynamics here, and I don't want to get too specific into numbers here, but I think it's it's more uh, the, the the predicament that people find themselves in. Uh, it, there is existing federal legislation, and there is actually a federal assistance program. But my understanding is 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 the money that's doled out is on a weekly basis. Well, uh, oftentimes a lot of these people, these are all usually lower paid jobs. Uh, they don't need a week off; they might just need a day or two to get over the symptoms or to go get tested because of the symptoms or whatever the case might be. Uh, so. You, you're almost forcing them to take a week off, and that could be a week off without pay, which they can't really afford. Uh, the government's done some amendments to just about every other assistance program they've initiated during COVID-19. I'm surprised they just—they just don't seem to want to touch this one. Yeah, it's too—it's too contentious, right? If you try and start changing the way that uh, you know paid leave or pay time off is is. Uh, approach, then, you know, don't forget that this is, it has to be financed from something. And, and so essentially what you're having then is there's a sick tax that if I'm blessed with good genes or if I'm blessed in a way that I don't need to take time off from work, of course, my taxes are going to go up and it's going to show up on a payroll tax, right? The same way CPPEI mm-hmm. are deducted. There's going to be some sort of paid federal government sick leave tax that's going to be deducted for me. And, you know, those types of things show up as well with, like, seniority, right? So if somebody's been with a company for 20 years, they're probably entitled then to more paid sick leave, um, possibly because they've been there longer, possibly because they're going to be sicker. But notice that all of these sorts of things then create all kinds of quagmires for the governments that they just don't want to touch. But they've done it with every other factor. I mean, I mean that, that's the thing I find about so amazing about this is, you know, they said, okay, we're going to break all the rules now. A year ago, when they said, well, you know, we've got to help these people, uh, and and I, it's well documented, I guess, isn't it, really, Moshe, that this this is this is happening. I mean, you don't have to think why well, we think it's happening. We're hearing about it. The the outbreak at, at the Canada Post warehouse a couple of weeks ago, where actually a, a couple of people I think ended up dying as a result of the spread. It's happening in in especially in Peel region, which is consistently had some of the highest numbers of COVID-19 and not coincidentally of course it's also an area with an awful lot of warehousing and, and distribution warehouses that go on there so no wonder it's spreading there. Absolutely I, I think that it's a government that's showing signs of fatigue and I think it's got too many fingers in the pie here where they just can't kind of control what's going on right don't forget that they're already around 400 billion dollars uh, into a deficit from the past 12 months that tacked onto the the already existing debt and they're kind of botching the rollout of the, the vaccination program. So, you know, the thought that they now need to allocate resources to thinking about paid sick leave when I think they're probably keeping their fingers crossed as much as anybody else that this is going to be over in the next five months, six months or whatever. They're thinking if we can just get to a point where we can roll out these vaccines, maybe we don't need to worry about this for now. And so I think it's almost kind of that the, the end is near in their minds that why, why even bother risking political capital on this quagmire right now? Just leave it till later.
Yeah, well, that's kind of like saying I'm not going to open my your credit card bill and maybe it'll go away in six months. It's, <laughs> it's not going to happen. I mean, it's still going to be with us. As a matter of fact, your, to your point, though, uh, the doctors and medical experts, epidemiologists, etc., tell us this is not going to go away in five or six months. Even if we're all inoculated by then, uh, we still have to be worried about this. So this is still going to happen. There's, I, did they, do you think, as you've looked into this issue, though, do they actually um, – understand what the issue is here uh you, you know you made your point about an awful lot of people have have allocated sick days depending on where they work you know you get three or four or ten days or whatever it is but those are usually unionized jobs or negotiated settlements and so there's an awful lot of people working in these situations uh first of all may not have a union job and have no sick days at all it's just not an allocation you paid as you work and that's all there is to it so that and as you say like so many other things this existed before the pandemic came along and and like everything else it's just it's this has underscored the concern here that, that's going on i mean this was happening before but we didn't have a virus you know that was going like a wildfire through the, the population like this one is so you'd think they'd have to address it yeah you know i, I think what they they're going to need to do is kind of approach this in a sort of holistic way the same way that when they started to kind of withdraw serb they kind of folded it into an existing program. I think they can mm-hmm. go even further and kind of reimagine the idea of sick leave as part of maybe a broader idea of just like paid time off. And so that could include everything like vacations, personal days, mental health days, as well as actual physical sickness days. And so the idea is that everybody's given an allocation of here's a certain number of days off where you'll be paid. You can use those either to just rest you can use it to go on vacation. You can use it to take care of the kids. You can use it because you just don't feel like coming in today, and it's one of those days you just want to binge on Netflix. But whatever it is, here's a certain amount of allocation. Then, And then that way, it's a broader program that encompasses all aspects. Uh, it might be an easier sort of sell then, uh, and it might involve kind of less carve-outs and exemptions and things like that. Is there any province that's, that's making that allowance? Is Quebec or anybody else doing that? There, there, there seem to be other provinces that seem a little more forward-thinking on a lot of these sorts of policies more than Ontario is these days. Yeah, you know what? It, it's merely just a matter of what is it that the voters want, right? And what is it that the voters mm-hmm. are prepared to pay for? And that's the big thing, right? Is don't forget that all of these programs are great when we talk about, well, they should have it. Absolutely, they should. But are you prepared to pay for it? And so I think one of those things is when you start putting – uh, you know, dollar figures in front of people and saying, okay, this is going to cost this much money or because of the current system where we have people coming into work, it's costing this much money in terms of lost productivity. Here's what we're offering you then. Then all of a sudden people can make uh, informed decisions. So I, I think it's something that uh, is very easily discussed within an election platform. And I think that the forward-thinking provinces that want to do it are not necessarily forward-thinking, but they're the ones that have most recently had elections where this issue, of course, is going to be kind of front and center. And so, you know, provinces out in Atlantic Canada, which have gone to the polls in the last 12 months, are, are probably a little more forward thinking, merely because it, it's front and center for them right now. But don't you find, even if this becomes an election issue, like any other topic that becomes an election issue, uh, obviously, there's going to be pros and cons, depending on, on which political party you're dealing with. Uh, and the, the people that are against it are going to say, you know what, this is going to cost. That's always a big number. Of course it's going to be a big number. You're dealing with a, a heavily populated area. But they rarely, if ever, bring up what's it cost us to not do it. What's it costing us right now in time off and in, in illness and uh, in a things like I, I And I know it's sometimes difficult to quantify that, but you can take a, a run at it and get some sort of a dollar figure as to what's happening because we're not doing something like this. But that rarely becomes part of the debate. Well, I mean, that's why you have economists like me on, right? It's, exactly. <laughs> it's to present the proper economics argument. You're absolutely right. That when you present 
um, costs of these programs, you never mentioned that this cost is also going to save you this much money. And so the net cost is usually substantially lower. And in the case of paid sick leave, it's usually when you start totting up the amount of lost productivity or the amount of lost days or the amount of extra training that's involved to bring in extra staff, it's probably easily justified and paid for through some sort of support program. But it, it is a matter of just sitting there and totting up the figures and presenting a balanced argument. You get somebody who's apolitical or who doesn't have any skin in the game in that sense, and that's the way that you try and evaluate. And, you know, the, the government's taken some steps in creating a parliamentary budget office where, in theory, you put this sort of thing through an unbiased uh, organization like that, and they're going to spit out saying, look, this is what each party's views of their programs are going to cost, and then we can have a much more informed discussion on that. Yeah, and we're going through that right across the country in various parts about things like you know daycare and, and, and all of that sort of stuff. And I, I'm hopeful that we, we do get a wholesome debate and discussion on that. The other element to this, too, and uh, this is obviously an Ontario-only problem, although I'm sure there are other provinces that do this, are philosophical differences, political differences. Uh, you may recall, of course, Moshe, that uh, the previous federal or provincial government here in Ontario uh, actually allocated two days off per year for everybody, for no matter what. It was just It could take them as a mental health day, sick days, whatever. Uh, first thing the Ford government did when they got in here was they said, yeah, we're not doing that anymore, uh, and basically wiped that one off the books. And uh, much to the chagrin, I guess, of a lot of people that would take advantage of that. So there's there's got to be an understanding, but there has to be a political will, I guess. There does. And, you know, what, what concerns me from an economic standpoint is that when we do get past kind of the, the worst of this pandemic, uh, fine, even if the, the economic problems still continue into 2022 as well, um, our government's going to say that their first priority is to try and rebalance the budget or to at least try and uh, reduce the deficit. And so these types of social welfare programs are usually the first things that either get the chalk or are the things that are pushed off that, look, we can't think about that right now because we're so focused on trying to make sure that we get people back to work rather than trying to figure out ways to let people get out of work. And so, I, you know, I, I think that this type of situation is going to be very difficult politically in the aftermath of the pandemic. Uh, to, to even bring up as a topic because people are merely just going to see this as here's yet one more way that the economy is not going to recover. Um, and I think that's going to be, uh, you know, an, an unfortunate sort of uh, side effect of, of what we're experiencing now. As opposed to with that very same argument saying, well, here's one of the reasons the economy is not going to recover because nobody's going to be able to go to work because they're sick because we're spreading it. And, you know, if, if your child is sick or showing symptoms, most parents will simply say, stay home today. That's all there is to it. You're not going to school. And that's the common sense thing to do. But an employer seems a little more hesitant to, to make that determination. And the employee, of course, maybe even more so for the reasons that we just discussed. So what, what's the solution? Is there middle ground here? Because one of the arguments I always hear against this is, uh, you know, is the big number, the cost of this whole program. But a number of the other programs that they've instituted since last March in the first lockdown are temporary programs. In other words, as long as we're dealing with COVID, this is going to be in play, uh, but don't expect that this is going to be here forever. Is, is there a, a, a political will to, to find some middle ground like that? No. Um, and, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, even worry okay. about, I, I even worry about that sort of um, uh, approach that the governments are taking. You know, um, I'm not old enough to recall it, but I do seem to remember reading in my history books that income tax was introduced during the First World War That's right. as a temporary measure to pay for the war. So here mm -hmm. we are over 100 years later, and apparently that was 
some heck of a war that we're still paying for over 100 years later. I, I think that these types of temporary programs are very often not temporary. They're introduced as temporary, and they're there permanently. And so I think that's one of those things, too, that especially if we're heading for a federal election probably this year, uh, this is going to be one of those things that, fine, it'll be a topic, it'll show up, uh, and then unless there's some something majority, probably for the Liberals, it, it, it's not going to even be a, a, a starter uh, within the next version of the parliament. And so, you know, we could easily be seeing that this is this is going to be pushed five years off in the future. I just don't think that there's a political will to burn political capital on it in the next three to six months in a run-up to an election. And again, as you say, the problem's not going to go away, even if the uh, the virus and the pandemic goes away. This is still something that's going on. Uh, but it's it's minimized at that stage, I guess, which is the best news any politician could hear, as long as it's not a hot-button issue that's going to get me in trouble. Uh, you're right. Maybe the political will in Ottawa and Queen's Park right now is just let's just close our eyes and hope this thing goes away in the next six or eight months. And too bad, you know, for the people that are impacted by this, but, you know. What are we going to do? That seems to be the attitude here. But, and again, the impact it's having on the economy, and that's why I'm glad you had so much opportunity to talk to us about this today because there is a cost of not doing something like this to the employer and, and, and certainly to the economy at large if we can't get these things moving. You know, we've all talked about supply chains and, you know, all these distribution centers, they are deemed as essential workers, uh, yet they don't seem to be treating them. I mean, you know, grocery workers got an increase in salary and a number of other benefits tossed at them by provincial and federal programs uh, during the first lockdown. Uh, and again, this seems to be a group that's, that's really kind of left out of this whole thing. Yeah, and, and again, it's, you know, where is the, the vote going to come from, right? Who is the, the key sector that politicians need to satisfy, right? So, it, you know, a, a lot of the way that the, the pandemic was approached was almost kind of like on a triage sort of basis within an ER room, right? Yeah. Like, which sector needs the most attention right now? Let's give it to them, and let's hope that that attention will just keep them for the next six months. Now, who's next in line? And they're just kind of cycling through from one sector to the next. And so it's only once it becomes a real issue do they say, okay, now we need to allocate resources to thinking about that, right? I mean, there's only so much government that can go around to deal with the, the problems, especially when we don't have a playbook to work from, to know how, to, how did we deal with this in the past. So I, I, I think it's one of those things that, you know, there's certain sectors that probably just didn't scream loud enough, as bad as that is, uh, to get the attention that they actually needed and to make the issue uh, important enough. It's only now when you said, like, uh, in Peel region and things like that, that you see this kind of just wiping out workforce, that all of a sudden people are starting to say, huh, I think we now need to allocate resources to thinking about this. Yeah, the old squeaky wheel syndrome, I guess that seems to be it. Well, I, it, as long as we're talking what it and others are, maybe, maybe we'll I finally get somebody to actually uh, listen. I know they're hearing, but they're not listening. And that seems to be a, a common ailment with a lot of politicians these days. Uh, Moshe, as uh, always, thank you so much. It was great having you on the program today. Really appreciate your input. Anytime. Let's talk soon. You betcha. Take care. Moshe Lander, of course, senior economist and lecturer with uh, Concordia University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Pandemic has had an impact on everything, not just the education system, the business section, as we've been talking about, but also in the entertainment section. I'll give you an example. Uh, before the lockdown last year, March 15th, when the lockdown went into effect, uh, we were living life as normal, buying concert tickets, doing a whole lot of other things. And as a matter of fact, it was just a few days before the lockdown went on that uh, I bought tickets to go hear these guys. Now, 
We've had Max Kerman from the Arkells on the show a few times, of course, during the course of the pandemic, and they're doing fine because they're doing a lot of stuff on. But I'm worried about other musicians. I'm worried about other music venues that are shut down right now uh, because of the pandemic, uh, and a lot of them may not open their doors ever again, and that's kind of frightening. Patrick Rogers is the CEO of Music Canada. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Patrick, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. It's uh, great to join you here this morning. Your well, intro talking- could not have been better. Oh, I don't. Well, as a matter of fact, I, I bought tickets uh, for that. I, we also bought tickets for, for Pearl Jam, who was supposed to be playing at uh, First Ontario Centre here. I mean, you know, we, we love going to live music. We've got fabulous festivals here in the Hamilton area, great festivals in the London area, uh, and nothing's happening here right now. And my concern, and I'm sure your concern, is even after the pandemic is over, uh, are these guys going to survive? Yeah, I mean, that is a really big concern for us here at Music Canada and our members, the major labels uh, here in Canada. And we've been putting a lot of research into finding out what Canadians think about their health and safety at these venues, at mass gathering events, as well as, and we're really happy with research that we just released this week, about how Canadians feel um, and understand how badly it's affecting these industries. Well, what do you, I know Abacus Dad has been doing an awful lot of this research, too. What, what do the numbers tell you? What's the attitude across the country? So I think the research that we did at the beginning of the pandemic showed that Canadians were really concerned about sort of their personal health and safety, and that even though the numbers come back, and look, it's, it's a great thing to be a lobbyist for the music industry, that people really do love music, and, and that puts us in a great spot. But they were concerned about even after they get the green light to return, they were probably going to take their time. So even once mm-hmm. government said it was okay, they were they were going to make sure that they were safe, they were vaccinated before they returned. Um, and then at the same time, though, the numbers tell us from, from Monday's research, the numbers tell us that uh, overwhelmingly everyday Canadians understand that artists, uh, venue workers, bar and restaurant workers, techs, um, those people, these people in our community are some of the worst hit people um, from the from the ramifications of the pandemic. Uh, yeah, I mean, when you're making low wages and all of a sudden you have no wages, I mean, you're in a pretty precarious situation, and a lot of people find themselves in that way. And, and what makes it worse, I guess, Patrick, is, uh, let's face it, I mean, over the last number of years, uh, the Canadian music industry has really, I think, blossomed. I mean, you know, we're doing a lot more stuff here. We're doing a lot more production here. A lot of people are, are, are producing new stuff and writing new stuff and things of this nature. And uh, we have an appetite for it in this country, and it's just that appetite's not being satisfied. But I'm more worried about the people that are producing that, and as you say, the techs and the people behind the uh, the, the production boards and everything. I mean, those places are all dark right now. They are, and our our friends at the Canadian Live Music Association uh, also launched a campaign this week for the Love of Live, which uh, went viral. Um, where they put a lot of the really wonderful stories from from the people involved from our industry into the hearts of uh, into the hearts of the venues. You know, it's it's one thing to talk about the bricks and mortar of where these locations take place, um, but to hear people's personal stories go about it, um, it was a really big reminder of how important uh, these venues and these performances are to the cultural fabric uh, across the country. Oh, absolutely. As you've talked, just about every community we can talk about has some kind of music festival in the summer months where they, you know, people just love to get together and, and party and, and enjoy the music. And, and 
Let's face it, I mean, from a, an artistic standpoint, uh, not everybody has a huge recording contract. Uh, live music and playing venues uh, is the bread and butter for an awful lot of musicians in this country right now. And when those places are dark, these guys, uh, they're just not making any money at all. And uh, if we're not going to go back to those places, you have to wonder about the long-term viability of, of the venues themselves, but also of those artists. Uh, you know, I always heard about the struggling artist that had to go and get a part-time job as a waiter or do something else just to make money to to you know put bread on the table and to pay the bills uh that's what they're doing now and they may just say you know what i don't think i can afford to give up that job and go back into music full-time and that would be tragic i i mean that's something that we're obviously very very concerned about i mean and 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 the sort of double whammy or double jeopardy of all of this and that you know many artists who aren't full-time artists are in some of these gig economy jobs as well um so they're very much getting hit coming and going. And that's why some of the research that we did about uh, Canadians' feelings about this, um, you know, one of the, the number one uh, things that were raised, uh, the words, a word association for this, uh, was disappointment if more of these live venues closed. And we obviously think disappointment, you know, that's a, that, that is a very loaded word in the English language. And we're making sure that political decision makers understand um, what that means, that disappointment uh, for Canadians for, for closure of venues. Um, I don't know about you, Bill, but there, 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 I was always more worried when my parents told me they were disappointed in me than they were angry <laughs> at me. Um, and uh, so we were surprised um, to, to see that word pop up in our survey, um, but we're certainly making sure that political decision makers see that word um, because, uh, you know, I think it, it, it speaks to the importance Canadians put on these places. Uh, and it speaks to the fact that they're watching, you know, places like uh, This Ain't Hollywood or The Staircase yep. in Hamilton closing. Um, you know, that disappointment may have an effect on uh, those around us. Well, certainly, because let's face it, you want to see more of those. And uh, if the industry is on its knees, uh, you know, the idea of attracting investors is is, uh, is going to be somewhat problematic. Patrick, let's stay in touch on this. It's a very important issue, and I, I'd like to think it's on the radar of our elected officials, but uh, if not, we're certainly going to keep talking about it until it is. So uh, we'll uh, talk again soon on this, I'm sure. Thanks for this today. I would love that. Thanks so much, Bill. Take care. Patrick Rogers, of course, the CEO of Music Canada. This is the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London and 900 CHML in Hamilton. Well, another day of uh, testimony and presentations, of course, in Washington with the impeachment hearings of uh, Donald J. Trump. And, uh, well, a very emotional time. Uh, well, on some people's minds, it was an emotional time. Uh, impeachment manager David Cellini uh, made a presentation yesterday. He says that Trump stoked the flames of violence and failed to act quickly to call his supporters off. And he doesn't send help, doesn't try to stop it, doesn't even acknowledge the attack. Instead, our commander-in-chief tweeted the video of the speech that he'd given before that included language like, our country has had enough, we will not take it anymore, and that's what this is all about. Very passionate speech by a number of different people making presentations uh, yesterday. Uh, Reggie Cicchini joins us right now. Reggie, of course, Washington correspondent for Global News in Washington. Uh, Reggie, thanks so much for the time today. Uh, I, a couple of commentators after the the session finished yesterday said, how could you not vote to impeach the president after that? I, I watched most of it, as I know you did too yesterday. Is it going to sway anybody who needs to be swayed? 
I mean, it's, it's difficult to see it swaying enough people, Bill, to bring the number up to 17 to convict Donald Trump. But there are Republican members uh, that say that they intend to sit with open arms uh, to whatever the arguments that are being brought forward by both sides. Someone like Mitch McConnell said that he hasn't shut the idea down on convicting Donald Trump. Uh, that signals that there could potentially be some uh, opportunity to sway Republicans. You know, someone like Mitch McConnell obviously is worth watching. His wife, Elaine Chao, walked away from the cabinet because of what happened on January 6th. So we could see some potential breaks here. But there are so many Republicans sitting with their fingers in their ear right now in that Senate chamber. It really is hard to see that a majority of them are going to be moved. Yeah, I think uh, Eric Swalwell, who's one of the presenters yesterday, actually uh, is, uh, opined uh, that uh, that uh, Senator Hawley, Josh Hawley, actually was sitting with his feet up on the desk, not even paying attention to the video presentation, uh, because the the knock I'm hearing about that, Reggie, from the Republicans anyway, some of the hardcore hardcore Republicans, is that this is just a Hollywood presentation, uh, as opposed to an actual depiction of what happened on January sixth. Yeah, look, Bill, they're still focused on the process uh, and not the substance of what the trial is. Uh, and, and you have uh, a significant number of these Republicans who refuse to be bound by the majority. The majority of the Senate said that this is a constitutional trial, therefore it's going forward. But you have members of the GOP uh, that essentially are stuck on the fact of saying it should not be up to us as senators to convict a person who is no longer in office. We have to bring it back, though, Bill, to the fact that the reason this trial is taking place now is because it was not allowed to take place when Donald Trump was in office. And it opens a question, if it happened when Trump was still sitting in the Oval, would the Republicans have then said, well, he doesn't have much time left, we might as well not convict. There's a lot of unanswered questions and a lot of area that this goalpost has been moving. Oh, yeah, so much ambiguity in this whole thing. You know, we can't do this uh, before Inauguration Day because you don't want to do that to the president. Now, you don't want to do it after Inauguration Day because it's not the president anymore. So uh, that it is what it is. But you're right. I mean, you know, the, the Hollies and, and, and that ilk, uh, the Rand Pauls, they're not going anywhere. But uh, do you get the sense that there might be some cracks in, in some of those others? As you said, it's a pretty big number. You can count on uh, probably Romney and Murkowski and a couple of others uh, that are going to probably be, be swayed and already have swayed because they've voted for this in the first place uh but it's it's a tough nut to crack especially uh with this emotion that's going on i mean you know what you pointed out in your reporting yesterday was watching on global is these people that are actually voting on this the judges that are going to cast they, they were victims in this whole thing yeah and i think that's where you're going to see democrats move in their final day of arguments they're going to try to look at not only donald trump's actions uh, before and after the ride as it was taking place and this kind of lack of remorse, but also this pain and suffering that was inflicted on people inside the U.S. Capitol, be it House lawmakers, be it the senators acting as jurors, be it uh, the, uh, the staff members of the people who are going to be casting a ballot. They're going to try to draw on that emotion that was portrayed yesterday in some of that never-before-seen video uh, that was aired to try and at least get some kind of emotional response from the people in the room. You know, you're right. You have someone like Josh Hawley doing paperwork. We heard that Chuck Grassley, uh, one of the most senior Republicans, using his iPad to simply watch something else so they weren't paying attention to the trial. Uh, this is a, a group of Republicans who are still tied to Donald Trump, uh, and they're actively working to ensure that the process is all they focus on so that they can allow themselves to not be the victim of any wrath that might come from the other side of the Republican Party that doesn't exist anymore because they're in Mar-a-Lago, should they opt to convict. Reggie, what are you hearing about uh, 
Bob Mar-a-Lago. We're getting differing reports about how Donald Trump is reacting to this. Obviously, he can't take to Twitter or social media these days. He's been banned. Uh, but, but the reporting that, that I'm hearing from some folks is that uh, that he's he's ranting and raving. He's upset with his attorneys, of course. That seemed to be the topic the other day uh, about what uh, Bruce Castor in particular was going on about. I don't know how he ever got around to talk about possible impeachment of uh, former Attorney General Eric Holder, but that was part of his opening statement. Uh, Trump is a, is, is a very emotional guy when it comes to legal representation. Uh, what's he going to do here? He can't fire these guys now. This is already underway. No, look, there was talk that he potentially would switch around this, uh, this, this legal team that he's got put in place. And, you know, we have to remember this legal team had very little time to put things together because Trump had one legal team that walked away over an argument over payments and over how they wouldn't push this, you know, the lie uh, about election fraud. So he's left with what he has. These are the people willing to put their reputations on the line. Uh, but we're hearing from uh, from people in Mar-a-Lago that the president is simply having uh, a caster take a second seat right now to allow for shown to kind of be the face uh, of the opening set of arguments. Uh, but also that he feels that he's going to be vindicated no matter what, no matter what his lawyers, uh, his legal team gets up to say. He believes that he has the support within the Republican Party. So while he can get angry at some of the kind of circular talk that was made by Castro a couple of days ago, he understands that he is still pulling the strings and Republicans are going to go their way. Otherwise, even without his platform of social media, he still has an ability to talk to his base via surrogates. uh, And that could be enough to drum up fear in the Republicans. And Trump is banking on that. Well, we'll see how it uh, rolls out again today with uh, another presentation, of course, by the prosecutors on this. And we'll watch uh, for your reporting, as always, uh, later this evening on Global News. Reggie, thank you so much for this. Great talking with you again today. Thank you. Take care. Reggie Cicchini, of course, Washington correspondent for uh, Global News uh, down in Washington, watching the impeachment proceedings that are going on. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about the impact that, uh, that COVID-19 is having on education. I don't just mean classroom learning or even remote learning. I'm talking about the the courses and the careers that people are deciding to go into. Uh, and apparently COVID is having an impact on that too. Students applying at universities in droves these days, of course, and nursing is seeing the biggest change in applications for the 21-22 academic year. Joining us to talk about all this is uh, Glenn Jones. Uh, Glenn is a professor of higher education and dean of the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto. Uh, Glenn, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Nice to talk with you, Bill. Well, from uh, the beginning of this pandemic, Glenn, we've been talking about our healthcare heroes, and I guess that's rubbing off on students, isn't it? It seems to be. I mean, if, if we look at the large increases, the two biggest areas are psychology, and of course there's been a, a tremendous conversation about mental health challenges and the need to address the, 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 the sort of invisible challenges taking place as we work from home. And of course, nursing, and we've 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 talked a lot about the tremendous importance of nursing, the the shortages in some areas, and of course, the fact that these are the kind of new heroes within the COVID environment. Well, it's changed everybody's life. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people couldn't even spell epidemiologist a, a year ago, and uh, <laughs> and now they're they're on TV more than some of the the talk show hosts are these days. But and and we're glad that they are because we need that expertise. But you're you're absolutely right. I mean, whether you're watching the U.S. coverage, the Canadian coverage, whatever, listening to programs like this, uh, the stories of the people that are working in those facilities uh, are just remarkable, aren't they? And it's no wonder that the people are watching that and listening to that and saying, you know what, I think I could do that. I, as a matter of fact. I want to do that. Exactly. I mean, and, and you, I mean, there's a whole science of people trying to understand exactly why people choose the programs they want to. And it's obviously part of it's about their personal match and, and the kind of 
their their interest in math versus biology versus history, but but it's it's hard not to to sort of see how um, as we as we look about the the, the situation we're in. Uh, you know, if people are looking for a meaningful career, given all of the news coverage and all of the situation that we're in, uh, fields like nursing and psychology have to show up as, as sort of fields where you can sort of say, well, I could make a difference, I could make a real contribution, and this is a field that I think uh, uh, has a real impact on the broader society. And, and I know that people may be dismissive of that, hey, I want to make a difference. So, you know, that sounds awfully trite. But at that age, and, and you know, I'll go back to my youth way back when, when we were making decisions about our lives and our careers and what we wanted to take to, to mold us into that, whatever field it was going to be, you do want to make a difference. You do think that you can be impactful. You want to be impactful in some way. Well, I, th- I think you, you, you want a career that's meaningful to you. Yeah, and I, and I think that the recognition, of course, is that in, for some people, that's uh, spending their lives studying history, or or working in an office, or doing computer science. Um, but but uh, certainly, there there are fields right now that are t- receiving tremendous coverage, um, and and you you can sort of imagine how individuals are sitting back thinking, well, you know, I re- I really want to make a difference. I want to have something that 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 has impactful for myself. Um, and these are fields that that are are being talked about that way through all the media these days. Uh, the obvious question here is if there's going to be a large influx of people that want to get into this particular, I was going to say, uh, job, but it's really it's a vocation. If you're into healthcare and you're a nurse, it's, it takes a special kind of individual to dedicate themselves like that. But uh, you got to get training, Glenn, and that's right into your wheelhouse. Uh, are there enough spaces in, in the facilities to train the people that may want to get into nursing? I think the short answer is no. I mean, the, the, this is not uh, nursing and, and related fields like this that, that you know, the, these are, are fields that are heavily accredited, very high standards. They have uh, requirements in terms of specific laboratory and, and, and professional experience elements. So, so I mean, there, there's probably some flexibility in programs, but for the most part, um, the, these are programs that, that can't spin on a dime. They, they really do have to, they, they'll have very, specific quotas based on, on, on the number of students that they can educate. So, so I, I don't anticipate we'll see a, a dramatic increase in the number of individuals actually going into these fields. Um, obviously, universities and colleges and colleges are very involved in nursing programs, practical mm-hmm. nursing and, and, and degree nursing programs. So, so I, I, you know, given the shortages that what we're seeing in the, in the marketplace, I suspect that they will try and modestly increase but no, these are these are not programs that can immediately respond to uh, increases in demands. They, the the requirements for the programs are quite tight. Uh, they have to be because we do want the best possible professionals to to graduate from these programs. Uh, so so we'll see. We have a lot of people who want to come in. Uh, there'll be a much smaller number who actually can can be enrolled in these programs. Well, and the, the fact that I guess we're talking about this, and and there's a, there's a. For, I guess a, a spotlight effectively shone on that profession right now and, and, and the various forms of, of that profession. It's not just working in a hospital. Uh, it could be any number of other things. Uh, you know, we're talking a, a lot these days about things like palliative care, about hospice care, about uh, long-term care facilities and things of that nature. So it, it probably opens up a whole different spectrum for people to say, I didn't even know I could do that, or hey, that's an area that I think I could work in. I think, you know, and there's we've talked about shortages in those professions too, which I think would make the the profession attractive 
Sure, and of course we're only looking at data at this point from the from the universities, the application yeah. data from from individuals from secondary school who are applying directly into universities. And of course, for many of the fields we're talking about, um, there are college credentials, whether they're in nursing or they're in related healthcare, all of which I, I would anticipate are looking more attractive to to secondary school students. But we don't have those numbers yet. And of course, for for many areas in the health professions, you begin in a in a biology program or a uh, some some area of, of re- related to medicine, and then you move from there into a more specialized program later on in your academic career. So so what we're seeing at this point is this increase in in nursing, but we're also seeing an increase in sort of biology and and the in the sort of human science area, uh, and and that's that the, many of those individuals I'm assuming are going to want to go into other kind of related to health professional areas uh, as they proceed in their program. Well, Glenn, you must see that all the time. I, I know certainly a lot of the people that that I grew up with. Uh, you know, I, I'm going in here. I'm going to go to this university or that university, and I'm going to do this. Uh, and you get into that environment and that learning environment, and all of a sudden, uh, you're taking an exit ramp off here and said, "I, I now I'm interested in this. It's kind of a related field, but uh, it's it's really got my attention, and it's, that's where my passion is right now." So you're right. When they walk in the door, they don't always walk out the door with that same. Ad- there's there's a lot can change in that environment as you explain to more more about that profession sure i mean there, there are certainly uh, individuals who at you know 18 years of age know exactly what it is they want to do and 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 they're you know they they, ex- they have an understanding of the career they want to move into and they move immediately into it and they have a successful you know uh, professional life but for for many individuals it's not a linear process they start somewhere they they move into to an occupation and they move on from there so increasingly, I mean, this is a lifelong learning process that we're all part of. Uh, individuals are, in some cases, are changing careers on a regular basis. Some jobs simply disappear because of the, those requirements shift in the, in the labor market. So, you know, often you're seeing people who come to go into post-secondary education then move into the labor force and then come back. And, and it's, it's, it's uh, this notion of, of people uh, continuing to interact with the labor market and, you know, needing more information, needing more knowledge, um, but also making personal decisions as as they shift themselves into new careers as they move along. For people that are, are going into this particular field, though, Glenn, and uh, and I know there's a lot more hands-on learning than there used to be 25, 30 years ago, especially in professions like this, uh, but do, do you ensure that the students that want to pursue this uh, going in with, with eyes wide open? I mean, one of the other stories that we do have to talk about and have talked about at great length here is the pressure that's on the nursing profession, especially during a pandemic. Uh, we know that that's one profession that has one of the higher rates of, 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 of depression and, and just so many different sad stories about them being overworked and being constantly, of course, in front of, you know, people that are in really precarious situations like that. I mean, it takes a certain kind of individual, and you need to be psychologically prepared for that profession, too. No, I think that's very true. I mean, there's, there's a number of variables here. You know, one is we're talking about such an unusual time, so the pressures on nursing now are probably harder than they've ever been. Um, and, and one would imagine that those pressures will shift uh, a year from now or two years from now as we move into a, another phase of, of this pandemic. So, so in, in the people who will apply now are individuals who will come out four years from now, and they'll come out into a slightly different environment, and hopefully one that has slightly less stress and a, and a slightly different mm-hmm. working situation. Um, but I think the other part of it is that employees themselves, the, 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 the support mechanisms around the nursing profession, individuals at the, the hospital environment, uh, professional care and personal care environment. There's a growing awareness, I think, of the need to provide supports so that these these in- incredibly important professionals have the kind of support that they need. And that's challenging right now. It's challenging in a virtual environment. 
Um, and it's challenging because, you know, we, we're running out of adjectives by this unprecedented time that we're in. Um, but I think there is our, our increasing recognition about the need for workplace supports. Um, that's part of the nursing profession, but it's also about the, the responsibilities of the employer, uh, the hospitals and personal care facilities that, that, that employ these individuals and, and the need to provide additional supports for their mental health and, and for their working, work-life balance. Absolutely. Well, the numbers are encouraging. We look at some of these uh, applicants and, and those who are expressing interest. And as you say, at this stage, Glenn, it's only spe- interest, and we'll see how that pans out uh, in the days and weeks and probably years to come, too. Uh, great having you on the program today. Thanks so much for the time, and thanks for your perspective on this. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Glenn Jones, uh, who, of course, is a uh, professor of higher education and the dean of the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.